Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Aisha Ray, who is the Associate Professor of Political Science at King's College in Pennsylvania. And we discuss the fall of Afghanistan. We take a look at the media and online reaction to the Taliban. We also discuss the wider geopolitical picture of the fall of Afghanistan and Pakistan's relationship with the Taliban. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Dr. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris, for having me. It's great to have you on. For the benefit of the audience, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I am an associate professor of political science at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, United States. I mostly work on South Asian security issues, also defense, war, and conflict, centered on South Asia, but broadly within the parameters of international security. Yeah. Yeah. So over last weekend, you know, we saw these sort of terrible scenes unfolding at uh, Kabul airport as the Taliban took over the country. So what are your thoughts on the fall of Kabul and the American government's reaction to it? Yeah, it was a pretty stunning day, a pretty stunning kind of defeat for the United States and a, a terrible day for the people of Afghanistan. In some ways, this outcome wasn't entirely unexpected. I, I, I think this would have happened at some point. Uh, the Taliban were always looking to seize power. And, you know, being a, being an, a very uh, coordinated, sophisticated insurgent group with clear political aims and, and, and knowing exactly what a kind of a strategy they need to follow, I, th- I think they were going to do this no matter what. For the United States, of course, it was a shock because it clearly undermined the entire process of negotiations that the U.S. had put in place uh, with the Taliban and, and you know, uh, the, the entire unraveling of the Doha negotiations. Uh, and, and here you have the people you trusted to to follow through actually coming back and, and taking power as as. U.S. troops withdraw. So uh, I think in many ways, you know, there, there are so many stunning kind of aspects to to the fall of Kabul for Afghanistan, obviously, and for the United States. Yeah, I mean, there's been, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the talking points about is sort of the failure of the Afghan government and the Afghan army. I mean, do you have any sort of thoughts on that at all? I don't know. You know, I I don't think it, it would be fair to squarely put the blame on, on the Afghan uh, military. They also didn't have, you know, the the air power, that that was a big deal that the United States had provided it previously. And so uh, short on logistics and other things, they might have found it hard to fight back 
And so, yes, I, I don't think it would be fair to really put the onus on them completely uh, in that regard. Yeah. And not a great surprise, but uh, Democrats and Republicans are currently kind of playing the, the blame game. Do you think this is best understood as a Biden administration failure or a Trump administration failure that Biden inherited? Or do you think it's more of a kind of bipartisan cross-presidential failure? I would, I think, go with the cross-presidential thing. Mm. I think the uh, biggest uh, problem here was, was a trust the Taliban to follow through, right? And not uh, engaging or, or keeping the uh, Ashraf Ghani government uh, present very much at the center of, of the talks. I, I think that was a mistake of the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Both should have been very clear about just keeping talks focused uh, with the legitimate government in power and, you know, finding a, or devising a plan that kept the Taliban out. I'm not sure that plan happened. Was there a plan to keep the Taliban out? I mean, we don't know all of this. Uh, and, and and so I think that's the biggest mistake they made. And, and they, they paid the price for it. Yeah, so that, that probably also partly explains some of the, the problems. Yeah. Because that, that could have undermined, I think, the morale of the government, the morale of the forces. Mm. I think from America's perspective, Americans had been really war-weary for, for years now. They wanted to get out of Afghanistan. And for both the president's, this was like, okay, now we need to shut shop and go. Uh, if that means talking to the Taliban, so be it. Mm. But, you know, again, it's it's uh, never a good idea to trust a terrorist organization, which I, I do think the Taliban qualifies and the United Nations Security Council uh, has them designated as a terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, this is it. Negotiating with terrorists isn't that supposed to be what the United States is against? <laughs> right. And so it completely upends the entire counterterrorism narrative as well. And, and you feel like you're going way back, back to the pre-9-11 days. Uh, so it's square one. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, sadly, symbolically as well now for the Taliban and, should we say, jihadism as a, as a topic, mm-hmm. is sort of being painted as a kind of big victory because they've now won against the, the world's greatest superpower. Absolutely. And and a lot of transnational uh, jihadist groups will get emboldened, right? I mean, we have uh, the hotbed right here in South Asia with militants from Pakistan operating, whether it's in Kashmir, uh, whether, you know, their direct support to the Afghan Taliban. Uh, this region is going to face potential crisis, I think, going forward, because leaders of uh, all these nations, surrounding nations, have to find a way to navigate now with terrorists. And, and a non-state entity that is actually vying for state power is, is now going to present its face as the, you know, legitimate representatives of the Afghan people, which they are not. And so the dilemma for all the surrounding nations is going to be how to actually deal with, with the Taliban. And I think it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous for South Asia because we have so many, you know, religious, ethnic, political uh, cleavages that could kind of blow up in our faces if, if we're not careful about it. Mm-hmm. It sort of it reminds me a little bit of some of the debate around Islamic State back in the mid-2010s when people were wondering, you know, if, if the Islamic State had held on to the land and become... A, you know, a, a, an actual country and you have to negotiate with them, you know, what do you do? It's right. a difficult one, isn't it? Right. It's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because the world is sort of full of objectionable regimes and how does one deal with them without giving them legitimacy? And I think that's where, you know, Trump failed in his dealings with North Korea. He would then embolden the North Korean government, wouldn't he? You know, yeah. yeah. And he had, uh, I think he courted some of the most vile regimes on the planet. Mm. So, 
uh, he he struck a deal with with uh, really despotic regimes. Yeah. On a on a wider question, do you think the U.S. should have even attempted nation building in Afghanistan when its original objectives were counterterrorism focused? You know, should the U.S. have just got out of Afghanistan after toppling the Taliban in two thousand and two? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, nation building is is never a very good idea. Uh, in a country that is so far removed from the United States in, in, in terms of just not just geography, but culture and history and civilization. And there are costs to prolonging a war uh, that, you know, not only takes the lives of, of Americans, uh, but is in the long term not sustainable. Uh, and I think you're right that the United States should have quickly gotten out if it was sort of this military plan that they had, they, they should have executed it and then left it, I guess, to the government there to to uh, manage the consequences somewhat. But nation building, right, again, is, is a very risky project. And, and if the U.S. experience past history is, is evidence of it, it has failed, uh, you know, considerably in, 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 in this nation building project everywhere. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a, a good idea. It, it's interesting. It kind of, with the humanitarian crisis at the moment and the particular focus on the fate of women in Afghanistan, which quite frankly is going to be terrible, mm-hmm. there are many commentators who are, you know, they're kind of saying we should be getting them out, which I understand. Or, or the other argument is that we somehow should be just staying there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's like and how do, you know so how does one defend or should one defend or, or export liberal values to other countries is it diff- is a really tricky slippery slope isn't it and and I'm not quite sure you know how one r- deals with that right right and, and and this is where the narrative again becomes very interesting right so we've had people who wanted the United States to get out forever including people in the media academia you know that the US had invaded Afghanistan and, and was an occupying force and should have gotten out. Mm. And then now suddenly it's like, well, should they have stayed on, you know, which I think is is a, a terrible way to look at it. The time had come to get out. They should have gotten out a lot earlier. And like I said before, uh, some of these consequences, I think, would have happened no matter what the United States had done. Right. Because, I mean, we can't we can't let the Taliban off the hook here. Uh, they have agency. They knew exactly what they were doing. And so I think I think this whole hysteria that perhaps if the U.S. could, you know, stay a little bit longer, another few months or, or another year, that uh, I think is kind of foolish uh, and, and unrealistic. And so anyone making that argument really, you know, is making a short sighted argument, I think how much the United States can do and it's done all that it could have done so far and um, still fail. With my lack of military experience and geopolitical background, I mean, the only option I can see is you kind of take a North-South Korea, divide the country in half and occupy one half and the other half is left to itself. But that's an investment of 100 plus years, isn't it? Right. And that would be, again, you know, sort of a colonial mm. position, which would be dangerous, uh, mm. I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, it probably semi-answers this question, but has pulling out of Afghanistan made the US safer? Or do you think it's created a situation that's going to be just as bad as the pre-9-11 picture of Afghanistan? I don't think the United States is safe. And this is this is a great question because we are probably, unfortunately, going to see uh, the, the networks of, of these jihadists coming together. Will they strike the United States anytime soon? I hope not. But now that probability, again, begins to 
become very real, right? Uh, and, and I feel like anytime insurgent groups and dangerous terrorists are, are, are in power, they are going to test and, and undermine any sort of country that is, you know, modern or, or, or has Western values. And, and, and I think the, the West has a challenge going forward. I mean, this is going to be challenging, not just for the United States, but I think also for the United Kingdom, for many of the countries in the West, because a lot of these groups also use, you know, you've, you obviously must have noticed they use the anti-imperialist narrative, right? Which is which is all baloney, uh, essentially. So they, they hijack a lot of the views of the left and, and they use it. I mean, these are far right fundamentalists, right? Uh, they're, they're misogynists, they're, they're, they're far right supremacists. And so they they use that and, and they, they, they truly believe that that's a, that, a, that is a strategy that can work uh, and they use it very effectively. And of course, we have a lot of gullible people on the left who also fall for it. I see this all the time in South Asia and it's really aggravating. They really fall for that narrative that, you know, this is a war against imperialism, basically their agenda of imposing their worldview on others by force. That's the way I see it. Yeah. Have you come across a book called The Prophet and the Proletariat? No, that sounds fascinating. Oh, yeah, check that out. It's a it's a socialist text from the early nineties that kind of argues that um that basically socialists and I, I use that in quotation marks socialists mm-hmm. socialists should collaborate with jihadists to topple governments to bring about a oh, you know a, a socialist uh, kind of utopia. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I know. And it's like and it is is a bizarre strategy because it didn't work out very well in Iran in nineteen seventy nine, that strategy. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a strange text. It's a UK text. And, and one has to mm. think about, you know, if you are really, uh, it's fine to be socialist, mm. but if you believe in equality, gender mm. equality, right, uh, human rights, I mean, the question is, who exactly are you supporting, mm. right? I mean, you can be on the left, but, but what kind of men and women are you supporting? Are you supporting people who are oppressors in their own right uh, just because they they believe in socialist principles i mean you know that 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 doesn't make any sense to me yeah yeah it is a strange one isn't it and it may be a, a topic for a wider chat one day i mean i i position myself probably as a center leftist mm-hmm. um and i and i find every year just people on the far left make me feel less left because <laughs> some of these debates that and, and the people they support like the support of venezuela what this does is that it hardens the right a lot of people who can be on the left you know start moving away because they don't see any logic in those arguments and that's my biggest fear because i see that happening in india and i'm i'm left as well but but not very far left i don't go that that extreme and and it's been a challenge because the left is so insular in its worldview right it it it, it, it finds it hard to build coalitions it, it really is inattentive to sometimes listening to people and people outside that sort of echo chamber ideological echo chamber right i mean that's it i mean that, that that's all that matters and I, I think that that is off-putting for many on the left too who find this problematic and for centrists and others or people who really don't know about uh, stuff you know they can very quickly move to the right and so i think that's one of the things that happened in india with with the hindu nationalist government i think the left never provided a good alternative uh, and still is not providing a good alternative and and i think in some in that narrative they probably have to include a, a sense of inclusive nationalism perhaps right 
something that actually respects the country and, and, and the nation. And, and, and I think that would help bring people together a little bit more uh, and, and, and give the left some more leverage and, and, and space. But I, I think they, they kind of have a way of <laughs> defeating themselves, which is really unfortunate, uh, I think. Mm, no, in- inclusive nationalism is an interesting concept because I think there's been a debate within the British left party, which is the Labour Party, who are the opposition to the current Conservative government. And um, there was a debate just a few months ago about starting to include the the union flag in more events and some people were like this is terrible and some people were saying we need to be a bit more nationalistic and mm-hmm. it's sort of, they never quite concluded that debate but right. uh, <laughs> it's an interesting debate <laughs> well look this is probably quite a good segue so um there, there seems to be a strange sense of giving the taliban a, the benefit of the doubts by some members of the media and online commentators there seems to be a very bizarre debate at the moment playing around that maybe Maybe the Taliban won't be as bad as before. Maybe it's Taliban 2.0, the improved model. Um, what are your What are your thoughts and reactions to you know to the uh, to the media and the online commentary about the Taliban's power grab in Afghanistan? Yeah, frankly, it's pathetic. Uh, it's it's really shoddy. Uh, I think what they're doing is really dangerous. They they are normalizing the Taliban, right? They're legitimizing the Taliban. No, the Taliban have not changed. Why will they change? Why should they change? Uh, if anyone has been paying attention to their activities, uh, you know, for the last uh, 20, 25 years, or even more than that, they're not going to change. They've, and, and they've made it very clear. Isn't this a clear signal also, you know, the way they've taken power, that they're not going to change. And so, you know, all these takes that they've changed and, 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 and maybe they'll be gentler and kinder are just uh, just so, you know, <laughs> idiotic to the core. I hate to say it. But um, and, and I think it's, again, dangerous because they want that attention. They want to be legitimized right now. And they will use any social media or any media outlet to kind of project that view that, yes, here we are, you know, we can govern. And this is all a tactic, again, to be in power and, and to, to, to kind of deceive, deceive the, the world, the international community. And I think the media needs to be really responsible about how it frames the the coming to power and and, and the next few days and months and, and God knows years uh, of this. Uh, so, uh, you know, if on day three, I've been seeing reports of how they're gentle and they might change. <laughs> I dread to think what's going to happen going forward. Yeah. Well, there's been a few things. I mean, there was the CNN reporter who um, they were filming them chant uh, the Taliban chanting "Death to America," and she said, "But they seem so friendly." Yes, yeah, Clarissa Ward. Ward. And I'm, I'm like, um, and he's like, "No, they're not friendly. They're happy because they've just won a battle." <laughs> right, they're happy. They won a battle, and they forced her to cover up from head to toe. Mm. She was standing as as a white American woman, you know, uh, without the full burqa and everything. I'm not sure they would have been that friendly with her. Mm. So again, it's a total disconnect. And I think Westerners can be very naive. Uh, I don't know whether they are, you know, they, 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 they really don't sometimes understand how dangerous these groups can be. But but uh, there is there is this naivety that is really sort of startling. One observation I've made over the years with looking at the war on terror, I th- and talking to people offline and in person, not even on the internet. And, he, and I talk to, you know, I like to think I talk to intelligent people, but it does strike me 
both people on the left and the right, how they kind of underestimate members of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. There's a film, a very good film actually, called Four Lions, and I've mentioned it often on this podcast, so if there is a drinking game for this podcast, you can tick that <laughs> off and have a, a shot now. But um, with Four Lions, the the terrorists in that film are kind of depicted as sort of a bit idiotic and a, and a bit happy-go-lucky. And I think some people actually think that Al-Qaeda members are a bumbling bunch of whatever, when in fact they're really quite, they're very, you know, Al-Qaeda senior leadership's doctors. They're full of doctors and very intelligent people, as are the Taliban. And I'm sure the Taliban probably briefed their people to be nice to the Western media because we need the, we need the propaganda. And I'm sure as soon as the media are no longer needed, that they will be ushered out very brutally. Right. Um, And even just before coming on air today, I've read about how German reporters, I'm not quite sure if it was a relative or an associate of theirs, has just been hunted down by the Taliban and executed so they're not that warm and fuzzy exactly i think people really underestimate the taliban and i don't know whether that's stupidity naivety or racism i don't know Mm -hmm. oh yeah that's a good point too yeah i didn't think about that yeah yeah (laughs) but it's it would somebody called it the bigotry of low expectations i think that was um i can't remember who coined that term now but yeah somebody once mentioned Mm -hmm. that and it's come up quite often when talking about terrorism Yeah, no, it's depressing. So away from sort of the online reactions, so back in the 1990s, the Taliban 1.0, the original Taliban, so the Taliban had support from Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Do you have any thoughts on who is supporting the Taliban today? Well, they clearly have a connection to Pakistan, right? I mean, there's Mm. copious amounts of evidence that shows the Pakistani state has fostered and nurtured the Taliban forever. Mostly the ISI has done this. Uh, and, and then, you know, you've got the Tehrike Taliban, the TTP. Uh, I just saw a report today where uh, all the prisoners, the TTP prisoners who were in, 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 in Afghanistan have, have been released by the Afghan Taliban and they're back in Pakistan. And so Pakistan is, is the direct channel right here uh, with, with the Taliban. And, and, and not just the Taliban, you know, if you again look at all the evidence, uh, given the number of militant groups that are, pre- are, are prevalent in Pakistan and, and are so powerful, this is, again, completely dis- destabilizing situation for South Asia. What's in it for Pakistan in supporting the Taliban? Well, you know, I think it's building a religious the- theocracy. I-, I I just think they-, they-, they can be, I hate to say this, similar a little bit to their Hindu brothers here in India, right? I mean, the mm. nationalists who want, want, want a Hindu nation uh, and have no space for minorities. I, I think they very much are-, are of the same coin. And it's, again, dangerous because they will can do what they need to do. Religious fundamentalists will, you know, take force and 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 take power any which way they want. And I, th- I think that's that might be one of the underpinnings for why Pakistan supports Afghanistan. Also, strategically, uh, another reason is that they never wanted Afghanistan to be very close to India because Afghanistan and India have shared, you know, close relations. And so Pakistan is always afraid that that if if this country became close to India, which is more secular or has been at least in the past, right, uh, then that changes the game for Pakistan. Uh, and and it, it can no longer wield control over all these other groups and militant groups that, that they, they actually can manage. So that is a that is a big deal also strategically and geopolitically for Pakistan to execute this um, because this all works out for uh, for itself. Although I have to say going forward, it is destabilizing, but it could be that it gets worse for Pakistan because when you have harbored 
people like this, there there comes a time when they can come for you. And so I don't think that that Pakistan is going to just get away with seeing a very peaceful Taliban just going about stuff uh, in a regular way in their country. Uh, so they'll possibly face some some problems as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What do you think about the US government's sort of approach to Pakistan? Because obviously, Pakistan famously is the country that had bin Laden in it. And that's right. where eventually he was found. And he was found in a quite an affluent area, um, it's Abbottabad, which mm-hmm. um, is the equivalent of, of Sandhurst in Britain. <laughs> and, you know, obviously, Pakistan used to get a lot of US aid, yes. millions of dollars. I, I don't know if that's still the case. But um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on on how the US government does treat Pakistan, maybe how it should treat Pakistan. Yeah, well, the US has always looked at Pakistan as an ally in this war on terror, right? They needed the bases, they needed uh, the support. But in effect, uh, this is a state that, that cannot be trusted again and, and is undermining American objectives in that part of the world, uh, if, if that's what, you know, uh, one uses uh, as, as the American lens on this. And one of the things they should probably do is give them less money so that they stop funding a plethora of all these militant organizations that are, are, are really dangerous for South Asia and the world. And what are your thoughts on the future of Afghanistan? That's really hard to predict going forward. If, if there's any indication right now, it's obviously a terrible time, right? A terrible time for them, terrible time for Afghans. It may be interesting to kind of see the growing anti-Taliban resistance pockets that are in Afghanistan and, and are kind of gearing up, uh, you know, like the Northern Alliance in, in the 90s to fight back. One thing is, you know, even though there was the U.S. occupation, a lot of Afghans have turned towards the United States. Uh, they are more modern in their approach. They're more liberal. And this might pose sort of a domestic challenge to the Taliban. I'm not sure it will because of the kind of brutality that they use to suppress voices and and, and how, uh, you know, again, brutal they are. But that's something that wasn't there uh, in in the 90s so much. Uh, so we might see fair amount of resistance. And I think that's where one should also kind of, you know, keep their eyes on, uh, kind of to see which side the tide kind of flows. Thank you. Well, where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, they can follow me on Twitter. Uh, well, I'll give them a warning, though, to be careful <laughs> before they follow me. Uh, my handle is Dr. Aisha Ray, and, and they can find me there. Excellent. And what was the name of your book? My book was uh, The Soldier and the State in India, Nuclear Weapons, Counterinsurgency, and the Transformation of Indian Civil-Military Relations. Excellent. Where can people get that? Uh, that's published by Sage. So uh, actually, they can go on Amazon. Uh, it's available on Amazon. They can also go to the Sage uh, website. It's also available there. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.